Second Timothy chapter 2 reads, verses 1 through 7, read this way. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul continues to encourage Timothy to remain faithful to his calling to motivate him to persevere in ministry. In this passage tonight, we're going to see Paul bring up a balance. A balance between the role of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives and the role that we play as one who actually gets up and gets out of bed, gets out of the, out of the recliner and works. Work is not a bad word. Work has gotten a bad rap. In fact, in post-Reformation times, work's almost become a dirty four-letter word, but it's not. You see, we don't work for salvation. Paul makes that crystal clear. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we camp on that, don't we? We want to make sure that people understand you cannot work your way to heaven. And we're right for doing that. But we forget that even in that paragraph, in Ephesians chapter 2, that's not the last sentence in the paragraph. The paragraph actually ends this way. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is this balance then, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, between the, the Holy Spirit's role, performing good through us, and our responsibility in the process. We cannot be park bench Christians who sit on a park bench watching, watching the clouds go by and say, Lord, use me, and then stay on the park bench. You know, you, if, if, it's, if it's your will, Father, for me to be used, then bring somebody to me. Now, that happened to me once. Only once, though. I was at that park in Pasadena sitting on one of those beautiful benches around that really wonderful lake. I'm sitting there praying. And some of you have heard this story. Bear with me. Most of you have not. I've been sitting, I was sitting there praying on a beautiful, wonderful day. I was all by myself. I was enjoying my prayer time. And one of the things that I had prayed, I, I distinctly remember, the thing that I prayed at this particular moment was, Lord, use me to minister to someone today. I don't know if you ever pray that, but I, I pray it not as often as I should. Lord, bring me someone today that I can give the gospel to. I would be privileged to, to be used of you to lead someone to Christ today. Well, as I'm praying this, thinking that I'm by myself, enjoying the beauty of the day, and enjoying my quiet time, somebody comes and sits right next to me on the bench and interrupts my prayer. Right as I had just finished praying, Lord, use me if it, if it be thy will. He comes and says, now, now, I'm aggravated because it's difficult to have your head bowed and prayed while somebody's sitting there trying to talk to you. So he starts talking, uh, striking up a conversation with me. As the conversation goes on, I find out he's an atheist, and we have a wonderful conversation about Christ. Don't know that if I, if I was used to lead him or not. I kind of doubt it, but a seed was planted. 
But the irony of the whole thing, the, the moment I got those words out of my mouth, he came and sat down and interrupted my prayer time, of all things. How dare he interrupt my devotional time for me to give him the gospel. But it happened. But it doesn't usually happen that way. But even then I had to open my mouth, didn't I? Even then I had to say something to him. Work for the believer is not a dirty four-letter word. In fact, it's something that is required of us. And in fact, the opposite is frowned upon by our Lord. The opposite being laziness. Spiritual laziness. And you know, you can be a spiritually lazy Christian. In fact, I would go so far as to say we all have been spiritually lazy Christians at one point in time or another. We're all guilty of this. And Paul is encouraging Timothy not to do that. There is a a certain amount of effort that Timothy is expected to put forth. We'll see this in three different illustrations. You, therefore, my child, the New American Center says my son, Technon, my child, be continually strengthened by means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I take that in the grace as a dative of means, by means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Heretofore, Paul has been admonishing Timothy throughout the first chapter with a series of imperatives or commands. We saw one in verse 6, kindle afresh the gift of God. One in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. One in verse 13, retain the standard of sound words. And then one in verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. It is by means of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that Timothy has a possibility of fulfilling these commands. This gives him the ability to fill to fulfill these commands. Now this verse, verse 2 of chapter 1, brings two thoughts together. The responsibility that he has to fulfill the commands and the empowerment that he has to fulfill the commands. The word you, therefore, is emphatic. It's it's emphatic both in the position that it stands in the text. It's also emphatic in its meaning in the text in contrast to Phygelus and Hermogenes, but following the example of Paul himself and Onesiphorus, and remembering his own giftedness, Timothy is to do his work. Get up and do your work. He calls him his child here. You therefore my son, or perhaps you therefore my child. It repeats this personal relationship that Paul has with Timothy, he has a personal affection for him. So he calls him his technon, or his son, or his child. This does not mean that it was his physical offspring, his biological offspring. You can have someone that's so close to you as an older man, you consider them a son. Or you consider them your daughter, even though they may not be your physical offspring. This word technon is an interesting word. If you think back to Julius Caesar... If you were to consider Shakespeare's rendering of Julius Caesar, the last words of Caesar as all these senators come and stab him, you remember the story, it's the Ides of March, which is March 15th, B.C. 44. Caesar has been warned not to go to the the forum that day. In fact, he had had a dinner party the night before where the subject was, how do you want to die? How would you like to die? When 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 the discussion came along to Julius Caesar, he said quickly, interesting, uh, that, that very night, his wife has a nightmare, wakes up the next morning, says, don't go, I don't want you to go to the forum tomorrow morning. He gets in his carriage, he, he drives from his home to the, to, the, uh, um, to the forum, 
a, a seer on the side of the road stops the carriage, and, and this man had told Caesar weeks before, beware of the Ides of March. The Ides of March being again March 15th. It was March 15th. And Caesar rolls down the window, so to speak, and whatever they did that in the carriage, and he says, hey, sport, Ides of March, and I'm still here. And he said, well, they've come, but they haven't gone. And he goes to the forum, and he sits in the forum. He he assured his wife he would just go. He would open the forum, and then he would leave if she was that concerned about it. Of course, he was a smart man, too. He knew he would made enough people mad that it was a possibility that something was going to happen that day. At the same time, at the same time all that's going on, another group goes to Mark Anthony's home, Caesar's lieutenant, Caesar's very powerful, physical lieutenant, and they they, uh, delay him at his home with a conversation so that he's not there at the same time that this assassination attempt is going to take place. Interesting how that that entire group of senators, 20-plus of them, were afraid of two men. They, they felt like if Anthony was there, Anthony and Caesar, Julius Caesar, would have been able to, to handle those uh, pansies and, and stop that execution. Anyway, Anthony didn't get there. He had been delayed, and after Caesar opens it up... It's history now. They, they charge the stage. They begin stabbing him. Apparently, none of the wounds was fatal in, in and of itself. But, but Caesar fights them off in the beginning. And then a fellow by the name of Brutus comes up and stabs Julius Caesar in the groin area. And it's at that point that Caesar stops fighting. And he brings his cloak up over his head, and he allows them to continue to stab him to death. But it's when Brutus stabs him. In, in that particular area, that Caesar does not say, et tu brute, that's Caesar, I mean, that's, that's Shakespeare, that's not what he actually said, he actually, his final words, all, even though he spoke Latin ordinarily, his final words are recorded actually in Greek, kaisu technon, and you, my son, which is what gave rise to the, or gave fuel to the rumors that had been spreading around Rome for quite some months, that that Brutus was Julius Caesar's illegitimate son, because he used that phrase that Paul uses here, you therefore my son. It doesn't mean that Brutus was Julius Caesar's illegitimate son. He may have been, but you can't do it from that particular word. It just means that he was close to him. And this was, as we talked about last week, betrayal. This was, for Caesar, one of the ultimate betrayals that, that even this, this man, Brutus, who he, he considered a son, would come and stab him. So it's a, it's a word that doesn't necessarily mean a biological relationship between two parties, but certainly an emotional relationship between the two. And here, Paul calls Timothy, my son. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is encouraging Timothy to understand the grace that's been given him and to utilize that to find his strength from not within himself, not in the sense of from within his own flesh, but to find his strength from within himself in the sense of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't forget where Paul is when he writes this. He's in prison in Rome in chains. This is not like the first imprisonment. In the first imprisonment in the years 60 to 62, where the book of Acts ends, Paul's under house arrest. looks very much like he leased his own home. He could receive visitors. Um, I don't know that he could travel anywhere he wanted to. That was uh, very unlikely, but probably something like the Martha Stewart 
um, probation period where she had to wear the bracelet, but she could she could go around her own estate. This was not an estate, but Paul could do many things. In fact, he writes four letters in that first imprisonment. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, what we call the prison epistles. The book of Acts ends there. We don't know exactly what happened, but apparently he was brought before Caesar, and Caesar lets him go. But then he's arrested again about five years later, after he's already written First Timothy and Second Timothy, and now toward the end of his life, while he's still in the very harsh conditions this time, of the Mamertime Dungeon. At least that's what tradition says. We have no reason to doubt it. There's no, there's no good reason to doubt it. He's in the Mamertime Dungeon in chains. We saw last week the Nonesiphorus. It's one of the only ones that tried to come and minister to him there. Paul writes this letter, and he's asking Timothy to be strong. Isn't that interesting? Paul is in these worst of circumstances, and he wants to encourage Timothy to finish well. Timothy's got a long time before he's going to be finished. But in order to finish well, you have to at least get started. And he wants to make sure that he's in good shape here. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As Paul passed the torch to Timothy, so now Timothy had a responsibility to do so as well to other men who would be faithful, and who would give evidence that they were faithful men. The Holy Spirit has seen fit to utilize faithful servants to mentor those who are to be the next generation of ministers. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is doing the mentoring. But as is often the custom of God, faithful individuals are used in that process. Anyone who's in the ministry, most who are in the ministry, have been mentored by someone else who is also in the ministry. I've had a privilege of being mentored by several very, very fine men who have taken me under their wing and given me advice and uh, not just helped me to, to learn how to break a passage down like, say, a man like Elliot Johnson did. In, in a way that I'm, I'm extremely grateful for in, the, in, the, in the, the multitude of time I spent with him and just in his office and in independent studies, he was very gracious to me. Or a man like Bob Leitner who, who helped me to, to put some ideas together when it, when it came to systematic theology. I went to seminary with a, with a fairly good understanding of systematic theology. I didn't know everything, and fortunately I was warned ahead of time not to go acting like you know everything or thinking you know everything because what's the point? If you go to seminary and you're not teachable, what's, why are you spending the money just to get a degree? Don't waste your time. But guess what? If anybody hears this take, you don't know everything before you go to seminary. No matter where you've attended church or no matter who your pastor was, if you, go, if you attend here and go to Dallas Seminary thinking you know everything already, you're probably going to make some failing grades. You go to learn, and you go as a student who should be humble. And so there's, there's much to learn, but it's more than just what happens in the classroom when they're writing something on the board. A mentoring relationship also takes place in the, the cafeteria, down at the pizza hut, uh, perhaps at someone's home over a cup of coffee. Uh, that's one of the things that Howard Hendricks is so well known for at Dallas Seminary. For years and years, and I suppose he still does it if he's still there uh, in the mornings, he would be right by that coffee pot in the student lounge every morning before the first class started. It didn't matter who you were, he'd be happy to strike up a conversation with you like he'd known you forever. 
more than happy to pass on advice to people. So God uses, God uses people in the process of mentoring. Absolutely, positively, for sure, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the mentoring. But He uses people to do that. Now, male to female, female to female as well. I'm just talking about in the in the in the pastoral kind of ministry. We are ministered by other pastors. Then pastors mentor you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right with that. That's the way God set it up. So what, what he's saying here is the, the things that I've told you, you tell somebody else. What, the, the wisdom that I've imparted to you, you need to tell somebody else. Because guess what? Probably within six months of the time that Paul writes this, most likely a, a shorter period of time, Paul's going to be with the Lord. Timothy's going to be there by himself. Uh, it's, it's very likely that, that John is still living, but Peter is going to be with the Lord too. Because if church tradition, early history tells us anything, he was, he was uh, executed along the same time that, Peter, that uh, Paul was. So you have the two leading figures of the Christian movement that are gone. What's going to happen? Is it going to fall apart? No, of course not. Because it's the same Holy Spirit that indwells Timothy that indwelt Paul. And, and Paul is just encouraging Timothy, don't take that for granted. Use it. We're talking about, in a sense, a succession here. But this is not the apostolic succession that the Church of Rome speaks so much about. Linsky, the New Testament scholar, says this, This is the true apostolic succession of the ministry. Not an uninterrupted line of hands laid on that extends back to the apostles themselves, so that all ordinations which are not in that line are null and void, but a succession of true apostolic doctrine. The deposit of what we still hear from Paul in his writings, this held by us in faithful hearts with competency to teach others the same things. The apostle evidently did not expect the future teachers of the church to produce new or different teachings. If you've produced something that's brand new and nobody else has ever taught it before, as Lewis Berry Schaefer used to say, it doesn't mean you're wrong, but it means you're probably wrong. And you need to be careful. You just need to be careful. The, the things that we teach from this Word of God have, have a history that goes way, way back. And Paul is, Paul is encouraging Timothy not to let it stop with him. No ministry ought to stop with the, with the death of any particular pastor. It, it ought to go on. If something happens to me, I, I would hope that Pine Valley Bible Church would go on. There's no reason for it not to. The, the Holy Spirit is not going to go anywhere. He's still going to be here. He can work through someone else just as easy as he can work through me. Probably, if you knew me, he can work through somebody else a lot easier than he can work through me. You know, the, the biggest problem that God the Holy Spirit has, if there was such a thing as a problem for him, at Pine Valley Bible Church is me. You know, as, as soon as he can get through my thick skull, then it's a lot easier for him to work on you as well. So there should be a succession. And the ministry doesn't die with Paul. It won't die. Christianity won't die with Timothy or the apostles. It's not going to die with your favorite pastor. And I know in this room there are represented several favorite pastors. I know that. It won't die with them. It won't die with me either. And I'm not, I'm not in any way arrogantly saying I'm, I'm in that category, but I'm just saying it's not going to do that. There, there will be a succession. God will always raise up faithful men to teach others also. 
Now, in verse, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, watch. Paul's going to give three illustrations, back to back to back, of what it means to be a faithful minister, what it means to do the work, what it means to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the first illustration is that of a soldier. Paul's emphasis in this illustration was on the importance of remaining free from entanglement with lesser goals and activities while serving the Lord. Remaining free from the entanglement with other lesser goals and activities while serving the Lord. That's what he means by no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. This isn't the first time that Paul has mentioned this to Timothy. It's, it's something that he had previously warned Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 16. Sometimes we have to say what Paul didn't mean. Let me do that now. What Paul does not mean, he does not mean that a minister should always give all of his time to the study, to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, in, to the exclusion of any tent-making activities, recreational interests, or family pursuits. There, there are many folks that have to make tents, so to speak. This is what Paul does when he goes to Corinth. He doesn't do it in some of the other cities, or at least he doesn't mention it, but he does it when he ministers in Corinth. My view, the reason he does it when he ministers in Corinth, this is not etched in stone, this is just my view, is because I don't think he wanted to take any money from those folks. I don't, I don't think he thought that they were of a spiritual nature where they could give to him at this point, because there was going to be too, much, too many strings attached to the giving. Just my humble opinion, I'm sure that there are others about it. But Paul made tents. He, he worked sometimes. I, I worked uh, the first six or seven years of Pine Valley Bible Church. I had a, a full-time occupation, full-time profession. I did that and then did this too. And uh, it was wonderful. It was great. It was uh, a marvelous time. But I, I realized I was, uh, it was about time for the Lord to, to change things up when I started getting irritated when patients would come in. You know? <laughs> Very irritated, especially if they came in without an appointment because I was working on a sermon or trying to do some, some work in a passage, writing a paper, and here they come in and interrupted me. Well, it's difficult to pay the bills when you have that attitude. It's, you talk about a non-singular focus. And, and after, after a period of time, he blessed me. And I was able to focus on one thing. And that's what, uh, that's what worked, and I appreciate it very much. But it, this passage is not saying that you ought not to make tents if that's the position that you're in. And many, many pastors, I would probably say numerically, most pastors, in terms of just sheer numbers of pastors, most pastors have to make tents in one way or another. So this is not excluding that. It's not excluding any recreational interests. Uh, sometimes we get the idea that we're only spiritual, at least pastors do. We're only spiritual when we're preaching and teaching and when we're studying and when we're visiting someone or when we're counseling with someone. That's the only time that we're spiritual. And that's nothing could be further from the truth. You can be just as spiritual when you're... Um, I was going to say on the golf course, but I better not do that. You can be just as spiritual when you're sitting on the beach with your wife. Or when you're, when you're sitting on the porch of a mountain cabin looking at a stream and the deer run by. 
You, you can be just as spiritual in recreation as you can in the pulpit. As long as the, as long as the Spirit is, is manifesting Himself through you. This is, not a, this is not saying that you, you ought to never have any recreational activities. Actually, it's not healthy not to. And uh, I'm glad John's out of the room so he couldn't say anything. But, but, but I, I know that. I don't often do it, but I'm getting better at it. And I think, I think everyone in ministry needs to take time apart and set it aside for just a, a clearing of the mind and recreation. It doesn't mean you clear your mind of God, but you may clear your mind of some of the encumbrances that come with ministry. And you can focus on him for a while. It doesn't mean that you should exclude family pursuits. And here's, here is death. To a minister. You want to know what death to a minister is? Excluding family pursuits. Forgetting that your family is your first ministry. That's death to a ministry. That's death to a minister. You can't do that. If you fail in the ministry to your family, it's very difficult to say that you've succeeded in the ministry at large. That's, that's, that's why Paul will say in 1 Timothy that, that a man needs to be able to manage his own household well. If there's a great failure there, there's a character problem with the individual. They, they don't have things in balance. That, if that's what it doesn't mean, then what does it mean? I think one of the things that it, 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 it does mean is that a person who is a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, unless there's some overwhelming evidence to the contrary, should not run for public office. It doesn't mean that you can't have a political view or a political opinion. But God has gifted you in a certain area, and you need to serve him in that particular area. As tempting as it may be to, to do the best you can to clear certain things up. William Wilberforce was, uh, I think, an exception to that rule. He wanted to go into ministry, but he was encouraged by others to stay where he was in the House of Commons to, to, help, to help abolish the slave trade in England, and he did it. Although he still wrote some fine theological works as well in the meantime. So I think it means that if, if you get involved in a hobby that takes your time uh, away from ministry to the point that it hurts the ministry, then you need to be very, very careful with that. Now, I've just mentioned things to do with the pastor. I noticed I got almost everybody's attention because it's somebody else. Well, let me go ahead and turn it back on you real quickly while I've got you looking up here. This doesn't just apply to me. I hope you realize it applies to you as well. Because every single person in here is a minister. You're a minister of something. You all have a ministry. And we all need to keep it in balance. And um, while, while the specific meaning of this passage here is, is, is probably speaking to those who are in a preaching and teaching ministry, the significance, which is a, a broader aspect, a broader way of looking at it, certainly applies to every single one of us as well. We are soldiers for Christ. Am I a soldier of the cross? Yes, yes, we are. The soldier's reward is the pleasure of the one who enlists him, who, of course, is God. And that's what Paul means when he says, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. All of us have a boss. I know who my boss is. And no offense, I don't mean any offense in this at all. I'm just telling you honestly from my heart, I don't work for you. And I don't mean that offensively. I hope you take it in the way that it's given. I don't work for the Board of Deacons. I know there's a man on the Board of Deacons, a couple men that, that are a CPA that signs my check. But ultimately, I work for the one who enlisted me. 
That's who I work for. That gives me a great sense of comfort because I know who my boss is the cap- with a capital B. Now, I also respect the leadership structure of this church. I, I really do, and I hope that they... I hope that that's been demonstrated. Those in this room that have served in that capacity, I hope there's a humility that's demonstrated that. But at the end of the day, I know who I work for. Now, at the end of the day, do you know who you work for? You say, well, I have a boss, and his name is Bob Jones, or I have a boss, and his name is, or her name is, is Mary Smith. Yes, you do. But ultimately, do you know who you work for? Because no matter what your occupation is, your boss with a capital B is still our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the one that you should ultimately aim to please. That's what Os Guinness calls serving the audience of one, or living before the audience of one with a capital O. Yes, we, we serve in front of all, the, I, I live my life in front of you, and, and you know that, and I know that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I've got to please the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so remarkable to me, and I'm sure others could, could validate this. Sometimes when I get up and preach, I'll, I'll leave and think, I could have done a whole lot better than that. And it seems to be those messages where people come up and say, that just touched me so much. Thank you so much, that just touched me. Every now and then, it's not that often, but every now, because I'm usually my own worst critic, I'll, I'll leave and I'll think, but I'll think, well, you know, that was, um, that was well presented. And usually those are the ones that nobody says a word. Isn't it interesting? But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, my Lord's the one that's going to gauge how much effort was put in to the sermon preparation. Uh, was, was it communicated in love or was it communicated in anger? And he will be the ultimate judge. So um, if the Holy Spirit is a, is, a, is a magnificent God and he will take even the worst presentations sometimes and and make something wonderful out of them, but that doesn't excuse anyone from not doing their um, due diligence in preparation. So the first illustration is of a soldier. The second illustration that we see in verse 5 is of an athlete. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. We think athletics are a a big thing now. They were just as big a thing back when Paul wrote this. If not, it's arguable that they were even a bigger thing back then because they, along with war heroes, were the heroes of that culture. They had different games, you know, the Corinthian games and, the, of course, the Olympic games that have come down to us today and, and other, uh, other cities would have their own games. And if, if you were going to participate in those games, you signed off a, a pledge before you ever got to run the first race or throw the first discus that you are participating according to the rules, and that you had trained, I believe it was for a minimum of 10 months. And if you had not trained for that 10 months, then you weren't allowed to participate. They, they expected everybody to put themselves in a position where they could do their best. Nobody just got to come in and strap some tinny runners on and, and go run the 200 meters. They didn't get to do that. They had to participate according to the rules. And if they did, then there was a prize that could be earned at the end. As an athlete must deny himself, as, as an athlete must endure hardship and persevere to the end, so must every spiritual athlete. And just like we have the metaphor used of us of soldiers, the metaphor of, of an athlete is used of you as well. I know not everybody participated in athletics. Some of you don't like it. Some of you wouldn't have done it if, if your life depended on it. But 
But I have, and it was a great experience because it teaches you that there's times when you've got to push yourself hard. Not just for yourself, but for other people that are on your team as well. You've got to show up at 5 o'clock in the morning when, nobody else, when everybody else is still in bed. You run hard, you get hit, you get knocked down, you get up again and again, you get knocked down again, and then, then you get to play on Friday night or Saturday afternoon or for some people on Sunday, Sunday afternoon. But there's a lot of work that's put in. And some people think that people like, say, Michael Jordan, have such an incredible athletic ability that they don't have to work very hard at it. And that's not true. He'd be the first person to tell you. The people who succeed at the highest levels in athletics don't just have ability. They have a drive to succeed for the prize. They want to win. They don't just want to win a scoring title. They want to win. And they're willing to do whatever it takes within the rules, at least the ones with integrity, within the rules to accomplish that goal. And now Paul brings that metaphor into the spiritual realm. Now, we have a set of rules that we have to compete, uh, that we have to participate within. They're rules that God made. We didn't make them. And we have to um, abide by them. We don't get to set our own rules. There are, for example, in pastoral ministry, prescriptions for pastoral behavior. Not, dis- not descriptions simply. Not just do this if you want to. There are prescriptions for pastoral behavior, and there are biblical qualifications for holding the office in the first place. Break the rules and suffer the consequences. That holds true for the individual as well as for the congregation who calls a pastor. It must be done within the rules. We have to compete just like the athlete competes within the rules or you don't win the prize. In the spiritual realm, we have to compete within the rules or there will be no reward at the judgment seat of Christ. You don't get to set your own rules. You're not the boss. God does it. So this is the second, this is the second illustration that Paul gives. Third, and we're going to wrap this up here fairly soon, in verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. This third metaphor uses the image of a, watch, hardworking farmer to encourage Timothy to suffer with Paul. The emphatic position of this word hardworking points to this as the emphasis of the metaphor. The emphasis is not on the farmer here. That's part of it, to be sure, but the emphasis on the hard-working part of the farmer. God's call on Timothy's life and his willingness to suffer along with Paul will involve strenuous toil. More so than even the other metaphors. There was, a, there was a reward of the one that's pleased with you in the soldier metaphor. There's the reward of... of uh, winning a prize in the athletic metaphor. And here, the reward is receiving the first share of the crops. A farmer must continue to sow, to sow the seed and to water the seed if he wants to harvest anything that's bountiful at all. Likewise, the the farmer for Christ, if I could use that phrase, must plant and must nourish the seed of the Word of God if there's to be any expectation of a harvest. You can't just say, I I wish my neighbor was saved, and then never pray for him, never talk with him, um, never put yourself in a position to be used of God to minister to them. Or you can say it, but you're not going to receive, if you do that, you won't receive your share of the crops. 
Your share of the crops is another metaphor for reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But don't, don't miss the hard-working part. I hope you're getting that tonight. Paul's already said in chapter 1, the only way to do this is through the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he's stressing that there is work involved. And you've got to choose to do it. All three illustrations stress dogged persistence and hold out the prospect of reward for the faithful. All three emphasize that effort must be exerted. There is no place. There is no place for laziness in the ministry. There's no place for laziness in your ministry, whatever that is. Copion, which means to work, in this passage describes hard work, often manual labor. It's frequently used by Paul. This isn't the only place to describe the Christian ministry. Then in verse 7, Paul says, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you an understanding in everything. Now, the everything here is with regard to these things. Paul encouraged Timothy to meditate on what he had just written, knowing that the Lord would help him to see the wisdom of these words. Paul's illustrations will yield even for us many practical lessons as we meditate on them. And that's what that word means. Noyain means here to reflect on or to contemplate, even to meditate. It's another imperative, though. Paul says, consider. This is, this is not a suggestion. He wants, he, he insists that Timothy consider to meditate on what it was he just said in those first six verses. I hope you'll do that, too, as you're driving home tonight or perhaps before you doze off to, to sleep as your head uh, lays on that pillow. I hope that you'll consider what's been taught tonight. And, I, and if you're having trouble with it, I hope you ask the Lord to, the Holy Spirit, in fact, Although the Lord here could be the Father or the Son or the, the Spirit. It's different New Testament authorities debate that. But ask the Spirit to enlighten you with regard to this. Ask Him to purge any spiritual laziness that you may have in your own soul. Ask Him to give you an understanding of what it is that's your responsibility. Let me close by saying this. Tonight, many of you may have been tempted to think that this applied only to Timothy or to perhaps to pastors and teachers and evangelists or others in so-called professional ministry. But you've missed, you would have missed the point if that's what you're thinking. We all have a calling. We all have a role to play in the outworking of God's purpose. There is no place for laziness in God's plan. Frankly, there's no time for laziness in the plan of God. In Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 through 34 the writer of this proverb said, I went by the field of a lazy man, and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little of the folding of the hands to rest, so shall your poverty come like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. And that doesn't just mean your economic need. It means your spiritual need as well. Those who are lazy now can expect no harvest later at the judgment seat of Christ.